I've been having disturbing conversations with friends, actually a few people here um, of late, uh, who are all patriotic Americans, uh, but they're all thinking of emigrating, of becoming expatriates, patriotic expatriates. Um, it's a funny idea, but I understand it. A few years ago, I was having dinner with a very uh, fine, wise friend, known to many of you, I won't name him, but uh, I made note of the fact that he was uh, spending a lot of time in a certain foreign country, a lot of time. And uh, I asked him why, a little bit nervously, aware that I really didn't have any business asking such a question, but he, he acknowledged, yes, I was right. And then he paused for a moment and carefully considered his words and said, I want to live in a serious country. Uh, we didn't dwell on the point, but it made quite an impression on me, and I've been thinking about it ever since, why someone like that uh, would say such a thing. It may be relevant to mention that he's, the foreign country in question is Israel, where seriousness is an existential requirement. But it's equally important to point out that the gentleman in question is an American patriot of the highest order. He's the author of many books, weighty books on a variety of subjects, including American patriotism, among other things. For him to say such a thing was for me a very serious matter. So I began to consider the matter. Have we become an unserious country? And I dismissed the idea at first. Yes, millions, millions of good, responsible, uh, ordinary Americans, they pay their bills, they go about their business, they raise their families, they participate in the life of their communities. They build their futures. These are serious people. They're all around us. They don't have time for the inanities that are polarizing our culture. But then I thought again, and I considered the evidence. Would a serious country have run up a national debt of now almost 31 million, excuse me, 31 trillion dollars? <laughs> Big difference. Uh, during times of relative peace and prosperity? Would a serious country have outsourced its productive capacity to a ruthless foreign power employing what amounts to slave labor? Would a serious country have leaders so deeply preoccupied with domestic wrangling and partisan advantage that they fail to see the rest of the world is watching and taking note? Would a serious country actively seek to demoralize its police forces and undermine the authority of parents? Would it promulgate arbitrary and contradictory policies regarding public health causing angry divisions in the country and distrust of authority that may take years to heal? Would it open its borders to any and all, treating illegal immigrants as if they were citizens and citizens as if they were enemies? Would a serious country allow itself to become reliant for its information on a pathetic crew of gaslighters and propagandists that we call the media? Would a serious country allow a 20-year investment in Afghanistan to go up in smoke? Would it abandon the Afghans who trusted in its protection, 
along with a major air base and $90 billion of weaponry, an amount larger than the military budgets of all but two countries in the world? Would a serious country allow the apparatus by which it elects its leaders to become so corrupted that it's it fall into such disrepair that its citizenry of both parties no longer trust the outcome of elections? I could go on with this litany, and you know that I could. But here's the question that concerns me the most. Would a serious country so completely lose its perspective on its past that it would entertain the idea that the nation was founded on slavery rather than on the ideals that have made it a beacon to the rest of the world? And would a serious country think it appropriate to teach its children that its nation's past is best understood as a parade of horrors to which the most appropriate response is not pride, but shame? What we've needed instead is an account that places our faults in proper perspective, that understands them in much the same way that we understand every flawed but admirable person that we know and love in our personal lives. That is the nature of love, not to demand perfection, but to see imperfection in the light of something larger. And the unwillingness to love is the greatest unseriousness of all. In any event, we need to become a serious country again. And to do that, we need to believe in ourselves again. Believe in the reason we've been placed here as a land of hope for a world that needs hope more than ever. We need to understand that a world without a sane, strong, and reliable America will be immeasurably diminished, both in material and spiritual terms. And that we therefore have no choice but to live up to the responsibilities that come with our many blessings. But let me suggest that we need the recovery of something else, something that might seem like a contradiction to all that I've said up to this point. And that is this. Becoming a serious country means recovering our sense of humor. Seriousness requires the ballast of humor, or else it becomes something other than seriousness. We've given in too easily to a humorless gun-to-the-head solemnity in accepting ideas and invented words and concepts that are so absurd they almost seem to be a test of just how far the mind-bending can go as if we were a crowd of Poloniuses being played for fools by Hamlet. Now here I refer to a famous scene in Act 3, Scene 2 of the play, which I will reenact for you <laughs> briefly. Hamlet, do you see yonder cloud that's almost in the shape of a camel? Polonius, oh, by the mass, and yes, tis a camel indeed. Hamlet, methinks it's like a weasel. And Paul says, oh, yes, it is backed like a weasel. Hamlet, or like a whale. Oh, it's very like a whale. <laughs> Today, we can be proud there are at least 57 varieties of camels, whales, and weasels, and cloud surgeons who will promise to make us into whatever shape we fancy. One longs for a stubborn defense of reality. Something like the moment James Boswell 
famously described when Samuel Johnson was asked to refute the half-mad ideas of George Barclay, which went under the name, I'm not kidding, of immaterialism. Immaterialism. And uh, Boswell said, I never shall forget the alacrity with which Johnson answered, striking his foot with a mighty force against a large stone till he rebounded from it and said, I refute it thus. This is a statement not about the kicking, but about the rebound and about the solidity of the stone. Reality is not mocked, not for long. And why should a country that was founded by men asserting self-evident truths about life, liberty, and happiness, why should such a country shrink from laughing at assertions to the contrary? It's unserious to take every idea seriously, which is a way of stating, a somewhat less elegant way of stating Edmund Burke's famous argument in favor of prejudice. I wanted to get Edmund Burke in here because we are under the auspices of the organization under his name. It also makes for a great argument in favor of humor, and more specifically, a revival of humor, of laughter, as the right response to foolish and unserious ideas, the reaffirmation of life's bedrock. No weapon is more powerful than laughter. It is said, rightly, that whoever controls the past also controls the future, which is why we have to pay attention to how history is being taught in our schools. But it's equally true that whoever knows how to tickle society's funny bone also understands society's sense of bedrock reality. And that's true for the same reason that Dr. Johnson demonstrated in kicking the unyielding stone. It's because humor depends on our shared sense of bedrock reality and the incompatibility of some words or deeds with the fact of life. In that sense, comedy is the most conservative of genres because it grabs hold of audacious and incongruous things and brings them back down to earth. It pulls Don Quixote out of the skies and affirms his lowly earthbound companion, Sancho Panza, and puts him in his place. To know the comic, we must know what the real is, what the rational is, what they look like, be able to tell when they're absent. For this reason, I propose that the most important figure on the right at the moment may well be Greg Gutfeld of Fox News, the new king of late night television, a slashing, smart, and extremely funny man who's ultimately a tribune of reality and common sense, an opponent, opponent of our age's peculiar form of woke piety. He's doing us the great good favor of reintroducing humor into our national life, and not a moment too soon. Perhaps equally important are Seth Dillon and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, which Glenn Reynolds calls America's paper of record. <laughs> and which bills itself as a provider of fake news you can trust, which is a marvelous slogan. He lives up to this slogan every day. Uh, I hope you all read it.
with one of my favorite headlines, I could give you 70, we'd be here all day, but headlines like this one. Motorcyclist who identifies as bicyclist sets world cycling record. <laughs> A great deal of today's unseriousness could be summed up in that one headline, without any reference to swimming. So humor is a very serious thing, and it's something a serious country needs to maintain its balance and well-being, its hold on reality. Godfeld's competitors in the late night slot reflect a completely exhausted genre. These jokers are neither funny nor serious. They provide a reliably unfunny nightly ideological pep rally that exalts the good guys and Bronx cheers the bad guys. This mind-numbing predictability and adherence to left-wing presumptions makes us dumber and less serious. They weaken our hold on reality. They are fake news you can't trust. They have this in common with critical theory. You weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> Critical theory, our villain du jour, which is in fact the same old villain in new garb, and at bottom a plan for the conquest of reality and its subsequent remaking in the image of our will. Satan was the first critical revisionist historian uh, when he told Eve that, and I will paraphrase, you'll permit me, uh, it doesn't, it's not the exact biblical text. Did he tell you that? No, he was deceiving you. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you will become like him and you'll know everything. He doesn't want that. He wants to keep you in subjection. So eat the fruit and you'll be free. That's my loose translation of Genesis. Um, or as Max Horkheimer, co-founder of the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, described critical theory, it seeks to liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. Uh, expressed that way, it might sound rather innocuous, almost like the American dream. But you have to take the full measure of his words. He's talking about something much greater than upward mobility. Critical theory is a means of deconstructing what we naively suppose to be reality. What we've habituated, what we've been habituated to believe is natural. The word natural always evokes scare quotes in academia. Uh, natural uh, habituation, such as there are men, there are women. Man and woman created he them. Uh, men are fathers, women are mothers and show all of this to be merely a construction designed to serve the interests of the powerful, a massive wizard of Oz conjuring illusion and scheme. But critical theory also has a reconstructive goal as well as a deconstructive one. The point of gender theory is not only to explode the binary of male and female, it's also to put a new dogma in place, a dogma of normlessness, what turns out to be a way of robbing us of our freedom and turning it over to arbitrary and unanswerable powers, those who have the power to say what the meaning of is is 
and to put the law in its service. A robust conception of nature, nature, <laughs> places an automatic limit on our aspirations. But it is not arbitrary and invented any, any more than the re resistance of the stone that Dr. Johnson kicks is arbitrary and invented. It is the same for all. It's the same limitation. But it turns out that the dethroning of nature as a normative concept is not liberatory. It means enslavement to the will of whoever controls the means of production. And I mean here the means of meaning production at any given time. That's why the battles in our schools are so vitally important. They have to do with meaning production. That's why it is so important, too, that we regain our ability to laugh at what is unreal and ridiculous. When we are asked the question, do, what are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? We need to unhesitatingly choose our eyes. Critical theory is unserious thought for an unserious time because it lacks a respect for reality. It is the new immaterialism. When an academic theorist negotiates his contract or terms of employment, do you think that he draws on his professional views about the inherent ambiguity of texts? <laughs> Don't make me laugh. When an IT person speaks of the cloud, does he imagine that there's really a mist in the heavens where we can live eternally in the bosom of our precious data? No. He knows that the cloud is a bunch of servers here on the ground subject to the forces of nature and the power of governments, which are not constructions of our imagination. But such constructions, constructions of the imagination, are what the great modern social revolutions, the French, the Russian, the Chinese, have sought to enact, to remake the world and humankind in the image of an imagined substitute reality. Whatever else it may be, whatever else it may mean, conservatism must stand against this destructive illusion of human omnipotency. The notion that we can reinvent ourselves and that our liberation means the power to do just that. It must stand against the disparagement of memory, that most precious and human of attributes, even in its imperfection and resist the temptation to vaporize the past so that we can then pretend that we are not the product of it and of those who came before us. It acknowledges that we are made who we are by dozens of factors that we did not choose for ourselves and that make Horkheimer's call for liberation sound like a childish fantasy. Among these conditioning factors is the point in fact that we are mammals born into biological dependency, creatures who die. And death, as Wallace Stevens says, death is the mother of beauty. These are just some of the recognitions that go with our being a serious people. We already know them. We just need to remember them and live with them. And so, in order not to close on an unhappy note, we need to remember that being a serious nation again will also require of us a revival of genuine humor. The best leaven there is to the all too human tendency 
toward insufferable solemnity, puritanical ardor, and quixotic grandiosity. Or woke self-loathing, which is equally grandiose. It's a form of vanity that insists we are the greatest of all sinners. <laughs> no, we aren't, happy to say. We're just garden variety, unoriginal sinners. But we are in danger of becoming the most humorless of great nations. And that will not do. Not if we mean to be a serious nation again. Thank you.